Welcome to the Care Exchange, the Skills for Care podcast for managers in social care. I'm Pia Rafter Burton. And I'm Wendy Adams. So, Wendy, you're the new co host of the Care Exchange. Welcome. Thank you very much. How does it feel? Fantastic. I'm really looking forward to today. Yeah, I'm so pleased you're joining me as co host for the series three. I'm really excited. Um, we always start each series with a bit of a special guest. And today, the first episode of series three, we have got a special guest. Um, today, we're talking to Professor Michael West. Um, Michael is the visiting senior visiting fellow at the King's Fund. He's also a professor of organizational psychology at Lancaster University, as well as other professional roles at University College Dublin and at Aston University. He's also the co-founder of Athena Organization Development, so also AOD, that's part of the Skills for Care group. In 2020, uh, Michael was appointed a CBE in the Queen's Birthday Honours List for services to compassion, innovation in healthcare. He's currently supporting Health Education and Improvement Wales's 10-year strategy for ensuring compassionate leadership across all of health and social care. Michael's authored, edited and co-edited 20 books and has published more than 200 articles on teamwork, innovation, leadership and on culture. He's recently published his latest book called Compassionate Leadership, Sustaining Wisdom, Humanity and Presence in Health and Social Care. So really looking forward to chatting to Michael. If you've not heard about Professor Michael before, I really hope you enjoy listening to everything that he's got to tell us about his book and about how you can really use that in social care. So I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome, Michael, to the Care Exchange. Pleasure to be with you, Pia. Oh, Thank you. Brilliant to have you joining us today. Really, really pleased. How are you today? Yeah, really good. I've had a lovely day so far. I went for a cycle this morning. That was wonderful. And um, <laughs> I've got a stack of emails to do now. But, you know, that, that will be softened by a nice cup of tea and a donut, I think. <laughs> a donut always helps, I think. Yeah. <laughs> So Wendy, I just want to, I'm really intrigued to talk to you. So got lots of questions to, to catch up. So let's get going. So first of all, you've, you've written this book called Compassionate Leadership. Tell us what is compassionate leadership? Well, it's maybe worth beginning by saying what compassion is. Uh, you know, we, it's a word we use a lot. It's something that we understand, I think, implicitly or intuitively. But it's also the most important intervention there is in health and social care. We know from so much research evidence that the compassion of carers is the most important, if you like, tool they have mm. in their caring. And what it basically involves, if I'm, for example, if you or Wendy was in pain or distress, then to be compassionate, I have to do four things. I have to attend, understand, empathize, and help. And attending means being present with you. Nancy Klein talks about listening with fascination. Mm. Understanding means having a conversation with you to try to understand the causes of your pain or distress. Um, empathizing, of course, is feeling with you without making it my drama. Um, and that gives me the motivation for the fourth really important element of compassion, which is helping or serving the other person. So compassionate leadership is really the same behaviors. It's attending to those we lead, being present with them, listening with fascination, understanding the challenges they face, 
empathizing with them, particularly given the level of stress and work demands in social care, and then helping them. And in the context of leadership, compassionate leadership, helping means helping those we lead to do their jobs more effectively by helping to remove the obstacles that get in the way and by helping to ensure that they have the resources that they need, the right numbers of staff, the right equipment and the right training and so on. What you're saying is that by, I suppose, by being kind um, and, and, and being really present with, with, your, with your workforce, then you are leading compassionately. Is that if I kind of rephrase it, is that how, how it is? Yeah, I mean, kind is, I, I would say, is a bit of a bland word. I mean, it's those four behaviours. Yeah. You know, we can fool ourselves into thinking we're, we're being kind when we're not really listening to what staff are telling us. Or we can fool ourselves in thinking that we're understanding when we don't take the time to really listen to what they have to say about the challenges they face. So we understand it from their perspective. Yeah. And and you know we can you know we can say well I'm a kind person because I'm always nice to people, but empathizing means putting yourself in the other person's shoes. You know, understanding what it's like to be on your third night shift in a row. You're exhausted. Um, you've got to drive home. You've got worries about finances at home. It's you know really having the courage to put ourselves in the other person's shoes and helping means you know that that's the critical element of compassion. It's not just being sympathetic um, they're two completely different things it's yeah. the commitment to help those we lead by helping to remove the obstacles that get in the way of them doing their jobs and helping to ensure they've got the, the resources they need to do their jobs effectively so um it, it it's it takes a it takes courage to lead compassionately it's not some soft cushion scented candles approach to leadership far from it that's really interesting. Um, and I suppose one of the things I'd like to ask is we know how much registered managers have to do. Um, and it's such a, a, a pressured job and, and people often don't have a lot of time. What would you say to a manager who says to you, I haven't got time for compassionate leadership? Yeah, I, I would first say I understand how you feel. You've got a really pressured job. I think Wendy, you know, Again, it's about listening, understanding, empathizing and helping and having that conversation with registered managers and, and recognizing that they are under enormous pressure, as you say. Um, but it's also important to to say that what the research evidence tells us is that compassion doesn't take more time. You know, contrary to what most people say, carers say, oh, compassion, it would be protected. it's not about doing something extra. It's about changing the way we do what we already do and listening, understanding, empathizing and helping, which is which is, after all, what um, service users want. That's what they say they want from the people who care for them, that they listen, that they, you know, that they understand, that they empathize and they help. And that's what staff say they want from their from their managers as well. Um, so so it's not about it. This is this is something which is going to be just another task on top of what we already do it's about changing the way we do what we already do without it taking more time and thereby being much more effective yeah brilliant and does that so when you're you know if you're sort of kind of thinking yourself so if you've got managers listening to this who are thinking 
oh, I, I think I do that, but but do I really? You know, is it something that I, you know, how do I embed this? You know, is it something that I need to do? You say it's nothing to do extra, but it might be something somebody thinking, oh, I need to to think about what what do I do next? What is the thing that they might think? Right, I'm going to start today. What are the things I'm going to do today? It's change changing, changing their their way, I suppose. Well, I I think the basis of of compassionate leadership is being present so when we're having a conversation you know I'm having a conversation with both of you and it's about us being present with each other <clears throat> being here and now if you like yeah and rather than you know us thinking oh what's what's coming next or what happened this morning it's about truly being present here and now. And what we know about great leadership and good management is, you know, these are people who have presence. In other words, they're present in the interactions and they're really, therefore, available to listen and to understand and to empathize and help. So, and I think that's about something that we can um, practice, not in a not in a, oh, I've got to be present, I've got to be present, I've got to be present kind of, oh, here's something else to beat myself up for. It, it's 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 the the idea of relaxing into being present in the moment with the other people that we're leading and listening openly and deeply. You know, so you're asking the question of one of your staff, for example, you know, Wendy, how, how are things going today? And being really present while the person answers you. And then being able to follow up with any questions that are stimulated or sparked by what that person has to say. So it's it's really practicing gently being present with staff and listening so that we understand the challenges that, that they face in order that we can lead and manage more effectively. And I think he described that almost as listening with fascination. Mm. Uh, and I think that's a really lovely um term and a lovely way to describe it that it's not just about listening but it's about listening with fascination and there's a difference between those two things isn't there i guess yeah and that applies to all our interactions doesn't it in life when we're truly present and we're listening with fascination to each other we know that that makes the other person feel good they feel valued and respected what the research evidence tells us is it also makes a difference to to us so um, for example, two very sophisticated research studies, one with general practitioners and one with nurses, asked them to be extra compassionate in their interactions with patients and service users over a two-week period. That had a significant impact on their own well-being with lower levels of anxiety, stress and depression. So, so it, it, there's, a, there's a mutual benefit, if you like, from being present and listening deeply and having the intention to help. Yeah. And I suppose if if you as a manager listen with fascination and you really create that culture where that's what you're doing, then the workforce is going to start to do that a, with each other, but also with the people they are supporting. And as you say, the, the quality of care will, will, will improve, won't it? Yeah, absolutely. So so what we see is where um, in health and social care where leaders uh, attend, understand, empathize, and help. We see higher levels of service user, patient satisfaction, and, and better outcomes as well. So, um, because as you say, it creates a, a culture of people 
listening to each other, valuing what each other has to say, and also having that commitment to asking the question, well, how can I help? Yeah. And that that then radiates out into the interactions between staff and um, and uh, in interactions with service users. In particular, we know, you know, that th these things radiate out. So when you ask people to, for example, go into work every day and do some random act of kindness every day for a couple of weeks, they feel much better, as I've said. But also we know that the people who are the, if you like, on the receiving end of those random acts of kindness, don't just reciprocate them. They go on and are kind and helpful to other people around them as well. So, you know, this is how we create, if you like, um, more compassionate cultures. Yeah, it's like a ripple effect, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. A ripple you know. effect. So how how what happens then if you are you you said earlier that you know compassionate leadership is not some soft cushioning you know like you know way of managing what happens how how do you lead uh, compassionately with somebody who you know where some you've got some performance management issues or there's some sort of conflict how do you do that? So I think what's important to say is that. You know, our compassion in social care is for the people who we're providing services for, the people we lead. Um, and so that implies for me a really strong focus on performance management. You know, it, it's not about being wishy-washy. We're there to make sure that we provide care for the people who we serve. And so it means a much stronger focus on performance management. Now, what often happens, I think, in teams and organizations in social care is you have somebody who's not performing well or somebody who is, you know, a bit aggressive or discriminatory. And sometimes people don't deal with that because it's just too difficult. Mm. Um, but I think compassionate leadership is very much about saying, well, the first thing I have to do is understand the situation of this person so give them some feedback because very often people don't get clear feedback giving feedback i just saw um you know what happened on that shift and i think that there was a real problem with your performance on that because you know this was a consequence in terms of how this service user was treated this resident was treated this person was treated so giving feedback is the first step and also understanding from the other person's perspective what the difficulties are they're experiencing in their work. So taking the time to listen, understand, empathize and say, well, is there something I can do to help so that we can address this? Um, so giving feedback is the first step, I think, and then using coaching to coach people's performance that's about setting you know two or three really clear objectives for the for the person's performance and monitoring that and providing them with ongoing feedback um and and also really in some way encouraging people through saying look you know it was much better during that shift I, you know you did this and that was much better so that you're in some sense motivating people more um but ultimately if you have people who's whose performance is continually putting um, residents or service users at risk, or who is um, behaving in aggressive, aggressive and or discriminatory ways with colleagues, then we ultimately have to have the courage to performance manage them 
out of the team or the organization because those behaviors will affect the culture. New people coming in, seeing those that poor performance or bad behavior. Oh, that's the way they do things around here. Okay. And, you know, whether voluntarily or not, we tend to um, pick up on those behaviors and, and duplicate them. So I'm assuming then in these sort of compassionate cultures that you're talking about, people uh, within those teams might be more likely to raise their own concerns or to admit when things haven't gone so well. Is that something that you would you would agree with? Yeah, absolutely. So it, it's about creating um, it's about creating teams where everyone feels they have responsibility for the functioning of the team. After all, that's what good teamwork is about, where everybody takes responsibility. So people raising issues, uh, having the courage to raise issues compassionately, where there are toxic politics or, you know, chronic, chronically poor interpersonal relationships or, um, you know, legalistic approaches to dealing with problems rather than having open, honest, authentic conversations, um, people being generally cu genuinely curious in teams um, about each other's well-being and offering to help. So uh, absolutely. So every every team member having responsibility for helping to create more, more compassionate team working. Yeah. And is that how managers create good teamwork? It's a component, Pia. I, I think also, I mean, I've been studying teams in health and social care now for, I don't know, gosh, 30 odd years. And um, we know some of the, the key things that you need to have in place. I think one of the dangers about teamwork is teamworking is people think, oh, teamworking is, you know, we work together. Well, no, it's more than that. It, it, it's first of all, having in our teams a clear understanding of what our purpose is, who are the other team members, and having three or four or four or five clear agreed goals. I mean, in all of the research we've done, that's the most important factor determining team effectiveness. Have you made clear, have you agreed what the team's goals are? Three or four, not 44, not 34. You know, it's it's about having the discipline to have three or four clear goals, making sure everyone's clear about their roles in the team, that there isn't um, interpersonal conflict going on all of the time, because that's a disaster for team working. And it's making sure that we have regular team meetings, that we get together regularly in team meetings, positive, engaging team meetings where we talk about how we can improve the way we work, what, you know, what are the obstacles that are getting in the way, what are some of the difficulties people are experiencing? And it's making sure that, you know, we we when we have disagreements, which we should have about how to do the job better, how to improve, how to find new and improved ways of doing things, that those disagreements are constructive, they're respectful, that we value diversity, we value differences of opinion, we value differences of in people's backgrounds, because Diverse teams we know are much more innovative and productive and that we we also make sure that teams are committed to improving working relationships with other teams that they need to work with. So those are the key issues, I think, or the key factors we need to get right for effective team working. And, you know, when those are in place, teams are dramatically more effective and productive and stress levels are much lower. One of the 
interesting things in social care is organisations, some organisations are very small and might have um, three or four or five staff members and others are very um, large and could have hundreds of staff members. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on whether the, the size of teams matter? Yeah, so the evidence we have, again, is pretty clear from many studies around the world, um, but certainly of the work I've been involved in, in social care and healthcare, th that a team of a, around kind of six, eight, nine people is, you know, can function really well. As they start to get bigger, it becomes more problematic. There's more relationships, there's more communication needed. And so six to eight, nine is about right. Um, I mean, and generally you need, teams need to have the smallest number of people to be able to do the job well. I think probably in social care, something under eight or nine is probably right. Um, and, you know, where you have 100 people working in an organization, Wendy, then that's not a single team, it's a single culture or organizational community. Yeah. But we need to then define all of the teams within the organization. How do we define the teams that make up those 100 people? We define them by the tasks that teams need to do. So it's not about saying, oh, we're going to put you in this team and you in this team and you in this team. It's what the what's the what are the tasks we need to get done? And then we find people with the skills to work together as a team to do those tasks. So I'm maybe rather clumsily saying it's tasks that define teams, not people that define teams. So I suppose if you are managing a, I don't know, a care home and you, you know, you might have, you know, reflecting on my own experience as a registered manager, you know, I had a team of, I don't know, there's probably about 30, uh, 30 members of staff, part of that, that care, care staff. Um, but each shift was sort of kind of six or seven on each shift. So yeah. if you almost say, okay, well, I know it's going to be a different team every day, every day, but you, you know, you are on the early shift, you are a team. So therefore your, your clear goals are, you know, you're almost kind of getting people together as a team doing that for that shift. And then together, all those little teams need to work together. Cause you were saying that as well, that it's really important that a team work together with other, other teams that you get that team meeting together um regularly to, to talk about how are the different teams working um and also that if you have a have a shift and then at the end of that shift you just you know spend five minutes just going well how, how was today you know your your understanding i'll oh, think that i didn't go well can, what can we improve um that you're sort of listening uh, listening to the team as a with fascination to each other you know helping to say well what are the things that we could have done you know what can we what can we improve what went well what didn't go so well so you're kind of using a, a shift because i think it's difficult for managers to sort of kind of think well my team is 20 i can't reduce them because that's how many they are but if you kind of kind of group them almost in, in different exactly. ways uh, exactly yeah and and you know your point about taking time to debrief at the end of a shift or you know to prepare for the beginning of a shift is really important and taking the time to have regular um, meetings is important. So we know from a huge amount of research internationally that teams that do that have debriefs, um, you know, preparing for shift meetings, they're between 35 and 40% more productive on average. I mean, that's an astonishing figure. 
Um, so you know, people often say, well, oh, we haven't got time to stop and have these reviews and reflect and all of this. But but that's how you really gain an enormous amount of time. If you just keep spinning the hamster wheel ever yeah. faster. Yeah. You don't you don't have the time then to stop and say, how can you know, what are we trying to achieve? How are we going about it? What do we need to change? How can we do things more efficiently, more effectively, more compassionately? So, yeah, it's time, massive amounts of time gained through having those sorts of meetings in a team. And what you seem to be describing is the importance of involving the workforce in making those decisions about the service and about how they can be um, more productive. And I'm guessing that could either be in a, a, a sort of informal way or in a more formal way. Yeah, because, you know, given the limited resources we have in social care, we've got to make the most of all of the resources we've got and our most valuable resources are our people. And so drawing on their knowledge, their skills, their life experiences to help them to it, to help involve them in helping us to make good decisions about how we achieve our purpose in the work that we're doing is absolutely critical. And, you know, we know that the most important predictor of, you know, what's the factor that makes most difference to the performance of an organization or a team is the level of engagement of staff the extent to which they're contributing to decision making, you know, they feel they've got influence, they're proud of, of um, their team, their organization, and so on. Mm -hmm. So it is absolutely about, through listening with fascination, getting everybody to contribute to improving the way that we, we do what we do for the people we serve. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to, to read that you were involved with uh, designing the NHS staff survey. We don't have a, 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 an overall social care staff survey, but so if managers were looking to I don't know, create their own or, you know, trying to develop something to, to capture views in, in another way, what are the sort of things they might think about when if they're creating a survey from your experience? Yeah, well, I think it's really important to... Um it's really important to think carefully about how you would design a survey like that. I mean, what's been fantastic about the National Staff Survey in the health services, it's run for every year for 18 years, 650,000 people completed every year. And what, it's what we've learned from it is that when leaders in NHS trusts lead compassionately, those trusts subsequently have... Uh, much higher levels of patient satisfaction, better care quality, better financial performance, better staff retention, um, lower levels of avoidable patient mortality. You know, that's what the data has shown us. So I think it is important. I would love to see a national survey for social care. I think it's really important that we have that. Um, and I've argued for that for some years and, and I hope the day will come soon. Um, but if if you want to design surveys at local level in the book there are lots of open source questionnaires um, at the at the end of each chapter that you can use i think it's important to look at the extent to which your staff believe that they are being led compassionately it's important to look at the quality of team working it's important to measure um, engagement and it's important to look at levels of staff stress um, as well i think those are some of the critical issues and the National Staff Survey in the NHS 
the questionnaire is available open source online so you can just lift questions from yeah, there you know if you wish to you talked a little bit about stress there so how would managers um, compassionately support teams who are really stressed or overwhelmed we know that over the last two and a half years in particular at the moment is it, it's a really stressful time what are the things that managers can do to support their, their workforce well we've talked about some of them already i think pierre so you know taking the time to listen show you care time to meet together to discuss keep working together to find solutions but at a deeper level we know that staff stress is a result of um, our failure to meet the core work needs of staff we all have these three core needs a need for autonomy and control for a feeling of belonging and for a and feeling competent you know that we're doing a good job basically so autonomy and control are things like am i listened to do i have influence over decisions that are made around here do i work in a culture that feels like it's just where we're learning from when things go wrong rather than fear and blame um you know do i have control do i have some influence over my shifts some some flexibility um can i get access to nutritious food on night shifts can i have my rest break when i need it those are the things that give us a sense of autonomy and control belonging which is so important is you know I want to feel valued and respected and cared for in the teams and the organizations I work in. And that makes a huge difference. And, you know, we know that people who work in teams that are supportive have 50% lower stress levels. And the, the, the feeling of competence is, I mean, the, the single factor that gets in the way of that is chronic work overload. So I, I it's so important is that, you know, people feeling I'm not supported and I'm overloaded in work. That's what really grinds people down. So I think we do need to keep talking about workload for people in social care as in healthcare. Um, having good managerial one-to-one -one conversations on a regular basis improves the feeling of competence that people have and making sure that people get the training they need. I, I would love to see national programs that support social care staff to get professional qualifications, you know, that's absolutely what I think we should be doing. This is such an important area of our society. And it is, um, you know, I think government needs to do much more in supporting the growth and the development of staff in social care. What's interesting, you're talking about um, workload and, and if workload is overwhelming. Um, so that can be really difficult for managers because they may they may not be able to do anything about that you know they they may be for, for whatever reason that there may just be where they you know the, the staff you know are really overworked the manager knows it but they are, for whatever reason they're unable to do something about it maybe now or maybe sort of kind of long term how would a manager deal with that that situation yeah so you know i i, I this is a this is a new a question certainly I'm asked a lot um, in health and social care and in public the public sector generally because people are under such pressure. The problem is that um, I think leaders very often don't want to talk about workload because they don't have solutions. But it's not the role of the leader or manager necessarily to have solutions to problems. 
it is their role to make sure that we're talking about the most difficult issues and the most difficult problems we face. Because the problem is that if we don't talk about workload, then we're not talking about the most significant factor, which is affecting the performance of our teams and organizations in social care. Um, it's the number one factor that predicts staff stress. It's the number one reason why staff quit. So we can't just say, well, we're not going to talk about it or we're going to avoid it because it's too difficult. It's the most serious problem that we face. And so we, we have to talk about it. And the more that staff see that managers are concerned about that, that they um, they want to do something about it, even if they haven't got the capacity to do something about it, that they continue to talk about it and recognize the difficulties, that in itself is helpful to staff. And making sure that those other things are in place that I talked about, like people having voice, you know, yeah. um, control over shift work in well-functioning teams, those things help to compensate for some of the high levels of work demands. Um, and it's also, I think, we've got to look up and out. We've got to go to other organizations that have found some of the, some solutions to these problems. There are places, both in health and social care, that are finding solutions to the problems of work overload. There are places we know where staff stress levels are much lower than they are on average in social care. So we've got to have the courage and make the time to get commitment to go, go and learn from these places so we can steal with pride and, and adapt these new ways of doing things in our own teams and organizations. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you talk about compassion for the people that we're supporting, it's compassion for the workforce, but about self-compassion, what should managers think about that too? Yeah, well, I think the most important thing managers should do is be self-compassionate. And I know that that will, that will kind of um, rebound off many people's ears as though this is irrelevant to me. Um, but actually what we know is that leaders and managers who are self-compassionate, that seems to, as you described, radiate out and encourages their staff to be more self-compassionate, to look after themselves better. Um, and it's a you know if we don't care for ourselves as leaders then we too get burned out in the process and what it means in practice is um putting into practice what we know about how we recover from stressful work so the research tells us that you know we need to do outside work activities that give us a sense of detachment i don't know detachment from work you know things like watching a netflix series or reading a book or having you know, a dinner with the family or whatever, and activities that also challenge us a little bit. So cooking a nice meal, you know, baking a fancy cake, learning a new language, I don't know, you know, things that stretch us a little bit, help us recover. Um, and outside of work, we need to make sure we don't just have another long list of tasks to get through. We've got choice about what we do in non-work time. And exercise, of course, is important and things like meditation or yoga, those help. Um, uh, vacations, having proper rest breaks at work are important because we know that's important not just for recovery, but also for safe care for, for resident service users. And, you know, what's extraordinary from the research is 
how powerful spending time is nature in nature is for our recovery. Blue spaces, lake, sea, river, are the most powerful for recovery, then closely followed by green spaces, then urban green spaces, and even being outside at all. Um, and we know that the people who most need to engage in all of these sorts of activities are the least likely to do so. So they're the ones who say, oh, I'm here to help other people not to be self-compassionate. Well, mistake. Actually, your ability to help others is founded on your ability to be compassionate towards yourself. Spending good quality time with the people who, who we love and who love us is the most important factor in our well-being. Getting enough sleep is vital. Seven to eight hours of sleep a night is vital for um, repair and maintenance of our bodies in order that we can be good leaders and deliver for others. And it's having the courage to be self-aware in the moment, to know when I'm feeling bad or emotionally upset or overwhelmed or guilty or angry or irritable, and then having the courage to accept those feelings and to be um, nurturing and kind towards ourselves, just as we would be to yeah. somebody else who was feeling hurt, upset, overwhelmed, inadequate, that turning that, that love towards ourselves is key to ultimately the depth of self-compassion that we need to develop. And we know that when people practice this, if you like, way of um, attending, understanding, empathizing and helping in relation to themselves, that it enables them to connect more deeply, more compassionately, more authentically with all of those that they manage, all of those they interact with, all of those um, that they actually engage with in their lives. So it's critical to um, well-being. Yeah. And I think that, that is um, so important, isn't it? I think managers often get so caught up in caring for the people in the services and the people they support and caring for their staff that actually they, they don't think about themselves and they don't think about themselves until it actually almost becomes a, a crisis point. So I think that that notion of, you know, that self-awareness and, and thinking about self-compassion is, is really important right from the start. Yeah, I've, Wendy, and I, I think that's really important. And it's, and again, it's about a way of being, not, oh, I've got to remember to be self-compassionate. So I just want to, we have um, a question that we ask all of our podcast guests, which is our time to care slot in every episode. And I just wondered whether or not you could share with us, what's your most time-saving tip? Yeah, well, I, it is, we've chatted about a couple of things already, haven't we, Wendy? I mean, I, I was saying, you know, getting the team together to stop, reflect, review that increases productivity by 35, 40%. That's pretty big time saving. Um, I think one of, you know, I've been really fascinated by some recent research showing that when you, when you ask people to improve something like, I don't know, an interview system or um, a Lego building, 95% of the time they add stuff on rather than simplifying when often the solution is to simplify. So we keep adding stuff and adding stuff and adding stuff. So I think um, we need to learn to simplify. Um, I've recently been thinking about, I've, I've recently got a, an electric car. That's simplification on a grand scale. They got rid of the engine. I mean, how many <laughs> things go wrong with engines? Well, they got rid of the engine 
and all you've got is a battery in a transmission system. <laughs> it's so much more effective and so much simpler. And the other thing I'd say, I'd say is, you know, um, I was reading some other research where people um, were put in different kind of situations, one where they got um, some added time unexpectedly, another where um, they were asked to waste some time um, and another where they were asked to go and help somebody. And the people who helped somebody were the ones who felt they had most time to spare at the end. Because somehow or other, when we help others, it gives us a feeling of time richness, perhaps because we feel a greater sense of purpose or meaning in our lives. So helping other people is a great way of saving time. Fantastic. And we've got one final question. And again, this is a, a question we ask a lot of our podcast guests. So I'd like you to imagine that you're on a lift in the 10th floor and you're going down with some a group of registered managers. And before you get out, so you haven't got very long, you want to tell them what is your important key message? What's the key message that you'd like to leave them with? Well, I'd love to have a good chat with them on the way down in the lift. Um, that would be lovely. So we don't all stand there in silence. So thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk to them. Um, I, I Look, I would say you, you must practice self-compassion. That's really, you know, it's a difficult message, I think, for people who are carers to hear. But it is so important. And there's lots of good books out there. Tara Brach. Um, Radical Compassion, Kristin Neff. There's lots of good books on self-compassion. Practice self-compassion and, and, and look after yourself. Your happiness and well-being is critical to your leadership and to your ability to be present with those you lead and listen with fascination to them. That's lovely. Thank you very much, Michael. Yeah, that's a great message at the end. And I think you're right. You know, the number of managers we talk to who are so busy doing the day job, looking out bit after everybody, they just forget to look after themselves. Mm. And I think you're completely yeah, right. Yeah. That's that's the start, isn't it? Mm. Thank you so much for today. God, gosh, we've, we've covered a lot, haven't we? <laughs> uh, I knew this would be a really interesting conversation. So thank you so much for your time today. Really, really appreciate this. It's a real pleasure and real, real delight to talk with you both. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Wow, Pia, that was fantastic, wasn't it? Having the opportunity to talk to Michael and he had so many interesting things to say. Um, I was particularly interested in what he had to say around listening with fascination and what that means because we spend so much time talking about the importance of listening in social care. And often I think we are listening, but it's made me really reflect on how many times do I actually listen with fascination as opposed to just listening. And I think the importance of really hearing what people are saying, whether that's people who use the services or whether that's um, members of the staff team. What did you say that was particularly interesting for you? Yeah, for me, I. I I love the way he describes teamwork, um, you know, and, and what's really how, how you create that that teamwork. You know, first of all, this, you know, do you have to have this this quite fairly small team? And if you 
read any of the, the other blogs and, and things that Michael has written, he talks about the pizza rule, which I quite like. You know, you're a, 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 a team shouldn't be any bigger than you could share pizza, which to me, that's practical. I, I can see that. And I think if you start from that and you think, well, how am I going to do that? You know, he's, he's quite right. When you have a massive team, you start having all interpersonal uh, conflicts. You Not everybody's on the same page. All those things start to go wrong. So finding a way of, of using your team so it's, it's, it's no bigger than, than sharing a pizza. So I really like that. And I think the other thing that I really liked was when he was saying about creating some really simple not many not 20 but sort of kind of three or four rules or or kind of visions or goals for your team that you all agree on and in in the book he talks about five things we must always do and five things we must never do to me that kind of makes sense again I can kind of get my head around or you could just have two things we must never do you know and it can be you know if I go and make if somebody makes a cup of tea, they make it one for everybody. Or it could be something much, much bigger than that, you know. So I think having having those clear this is what we what we are all aiming for, I think is really you know, really sort of struck me as something that that's really important. And I think if you link it then to the getting everybody to to listen with fascination, to to use some of those other other parts, and we talked about the ripple effect, I think that's a really effective um listen fascination is is a really interesting um phrase it's he mentioned Nancy Clyde who's written this book which um he kind of quotes a few times from from that book it's about listening really well you know how often are we kind of nodding away yeah yeah I'm listening you know we do it with with probably the people who are close to us and we're really somewhere else we're thinking about something else so you know really being present and listening I think is really really interesting and listening is such a key leadership quality, as he outlined really right through when we were talking um, to him. And the issue around leadership is so um, topical for Skills for Care at the moment, because currently we're really focusing on developing leaders. And we'll be having a whole host of blogs and articles um, shared via our social media and on our website, um, looking at all aspects of how to develop leaders in the sector and part of that will be around focusing on those leadership skills which will include listening as part of that absolutely so first timers on the podcast wendy how was it it was really interesting yes so so informative and, and interesting so yes i've learned i've learned a lot yeah and what a great guest so i think we're obviously is a is a new series and so we've got series three one of the things we're really keen to do in series three as a as a bit of a new thing is is sometimes i have uh, questions from the listeners uh to ask our guests so we uh, so if you have got a question you think oh wait, i never know who to ask about that you know email to us either to myself or wendy you can find all contact details on the skills for care website or to the skills for care marketing team um which the details will be in the show notes so if you've got a question you thought well this would be a great question for for a future guest or if there's something you think god this would be a great topic let us know and uh, absolutely we'll, we'll we'll consider it and have a look at it the other thing I really want you to do, having listened today today's podcast, is um, where will you get your podcast from? So whatever p- p- uh, podcast platform you get it from, make sure you um, notify, 
press the notifications, press the following. So every time we release a new episode, you get a notification and you know to listen and hopefully um, find a good time to, to listen. And please do also share. So if you've enjoyed this episode, tell everybody else, tell the other managers that you know, oh, you know, I listened to this and I found out something new. Um, you know, I think it's always great when I listen to podcasts. I always kind of think at the at the end of it, you know, what's what's the one thing I've learned from this from listening to this episode? And I think if you if you think about that when you've listened today and you listen to Michael, you think, well, that was something I learned one thing, and I'm going to take that away and, and use in my service. That's a really useful tip. Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully, so that's it for now. So hope you have enjoyed this episode. Um, and you'll continue to listen to the Care Exchange. Um, bye for now. Bye.